Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm John Hartgen, ABI's Public Affairs Officer. To start, we hope that you and yours are safe, and we appreciate you listening. Today's podcast features experts examining the Supreme Court's June 1st opinion in the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico versus Aurelius Investment, LLC. Joining us today are Professor Stephen Lubin, holder of the Harvey Washington Wiley Chair in Corporate Governance and Business Ethics at Seton Hall. Professor Lubin is an internationally recognized expert in the field of corporate finance and governance, corporate restructuring, financial distress, and debt. Our next guest is Juliette Morangello, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development and Professor of Law at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. She is a versatile scholar whose interests include the online contracting process, creditors' rights and digital assets, and the relationship between state and federal law and bankruptcy. Our final guest is Zachary Smith, a partner and the team leader of Moore and Van Allen's bankruptcy and financial restructuring practice. Smith concentrates his practice in the areas of distressed situations and bankruptcy. He represents institutional lenders, strategic investors, special situation funds, debtors, receivers, board members, and other stakeholders in in-court and out-of-court restructurings, including complex restructuring matters pertaining to Puerto Rico. Our moderator for the discussion is ABI Editor-at-Large Bill Rochelle. Bill came to ABI in 2015 and writes a daily column on developments in consumer and business reorganization law. For the prior nine years, he was the bankruptcy columnist for Bloomberg News. Before turning to journalism, he practiced bankruptcy law for 35 years including 17 years as a partner in the New York office of Fulbright and Jaworski LLP. Now I'll turn the discussion over to Bill Rochelle. Go ahead, Bill. Thank you, John. I am beginning our program today by recounting the procedural history that led us up to the June 1 decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Actually, the impetus for this latest decision came in June of 2016 when the Supreme Court ruled that Puerto Rico was not eligible for Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy. That created a severe problem because Puerto Rico and its instrumentalities are subjected to $70 billion of debt that the island and its instrumentalities just have no means of servicing. Thankfully, Congress immediately rode to the rescue by adopting quickly the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act. The acronym for that act is PROMESA. And by the way, PROMESA in Spanish means promise. PROMESA called for the appointment of an oversight board in effect to manage the debt restructuring and in substance 
represent Puerto Rico and its instrumentalities in court. The members of the Oversight Board were not confirmed by the Senate. However, they were selected through a bipartisan process in the Congress with the President's approval. Having been appointed, the Oversight Board in May of 2017 began the in-court debt restructuring process. Three months later, that is to say in August of 2017, several bondholders filed a motion to dismiss the PROMESA proceedings. They alleged that the uh, PROMESA Board's appointment violated the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution because the members of the board were not confirmed by the Senate. In July of 2018, just about a year later, District Judge Laura Taylor Swain, who presides over the PROMESA proceedings, ruled that no, there was no violation of the Appointments Clause. However, the bondholders appealed to the First Circuit, and guess what? In February of 2019, the First Circuit reversed and held that there was a violation of the Appointments Clause. However, the First Circuit went on to invoke the so-called de facto officer doctrine so that the actions taken by the board would not be unwound. The First Circuit, by the way, uh, issued an order that amounted to a stay of the effectiveness of its ruling until a final disposition by the U.S. Supreme Court. The Oversight Board filed for certiorari in April of 2019, and just about a month later, that is to say very quickly, the Supreme Court granted the certiorari petition and resolved that the justices would decide two questions. Number one, should the Oversight Board have been nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate? And two, if the appointment was unconstitutional, does the de facto officer doctrine validate the actions previously taken by the Oversight Board? Again, on an expedited schedule, the Supreme Court set oral argument on October 15, the second week of the new term. At oral argument, two factors came out that, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, indicated where the justices were going. First, several of the justices were concerned that if they ruled there was a violation of the Appointments Clause, that might undermine the governance of the District of Columbia and the territories. And second, the justices got counsel for both the Oversight Board and the bondholders to agree that the case turned on whether the board acted primarily locally or nationally. Well, because everything was on an expedited schedule, lots of folks, including me, were expecting a quick decision. But lo and behold, it took more than seven months before the Supreme Court handed down its opinion on the 1st of June. That having been said, uh, Zach Smith, could you uh, give us the pleasure of your summary of the court's holding and its rationale. Sure, Bill. Uh, thanks so much. Um, the, the court held that the uh, appointments clause did not apply to the selection of the seven voting members of the oversight board. 
um, and and therefore uh, there there was no violation of the appointments clause with respect to the appointment. And I I, I think I kind of as I read the the decision break down the holding and the rationale into three points. One, and, and Justice Breyer writing for the seven-member majority, uh, held that the Appointments Clause does apply to all, quote-unquote, officers of the United States, even those who exercise power in or relation to Puerto Rico. But the Appointments Clause does not apply to local officers that have, quote-unquote, primarily local duties. Uh, the court draws a distinction between local officers exercising the power of the local government versus the power of the federal government, and also makes the point that just because a federal law, such as PROMESA, creates an office uh, does not automatically make the holder of that office an officer of the United States. Um, the third point uh, that, that, that the court makes in its holding is that the board members here, in the court's view, have primarily local duties, and therefore they are not officers of the United States. Uh, for example, the court, uh, in its rationale, uh, points to the, the board members' broad investigatory powers, which the court uh, states are backed by Puerto Rico law, not federal law. Uh, second, the power to oversee the development of Puerto Rico's fiscal and budgetary plans, which the court states are is a, a quintessentially local power. Uh, and then third, the power to initiate bankruptcy proceedings on behalf of Puerto Rico. Court notes that that is that is a, a local power in nature. And then lastly, Bill, you know, as you noted in the courts below, uh, the, the de facto officer doctrine uh, was raised. The court here did not reach that issue. Uh, because of the way in which the court uh, addressed the appointments clause uh, dispute. Just to be clear, uh, and I think it's probably self-evident, but in practical terms, what does this decision mean with respect to the validity of the actions already taken by the oversight board? You know, I, I think it means that the, the actions taken by the oversight board are valid. Uh, I don't. I, I think it, it forecloses the challenge to the validity of the board's actions based upon this this particular constitutional challenge. That's how I uh, interpret it. Well, let me throw this question out for general discussion by you folks. Are you surprised by this decision? Because after all, the First Circuit spent a lot of time and wrote many many words finding there was a constitutional violation. So were you surprised by the reversal? Well, you know, I, I always find it hard to say I'm, I'm surprised by what the Supreme Court does or doesn't do. I mean, clearly, um, as we'll probably talk about later on in this um, podcast, uh, the results could have been quite chaotic if the Supreme Court had affirmed the First Circuit. But, you know, the First Circuit really, I think, looked at this differently from how the Supreme Court did as far as um, who officers of the United States are. Um, the circuit court um, relied on precedent, um, primarily three cases, the Buckley versus Vallejo case, uh, Lucia versus SEC, and Freytag versus Commissioner, to find that members of the oversight board were officers of the United States because they occupied a continuing position established by federal law, they exercised significant authority, 
and their authority is exercised pursuant to the laws of the United States. But in the three precedent cases, there was really, um, you know, there was no issue as to whether the appointees were exercising federal or local duties, right? Those three cases involved the Federal Election Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Federal Tax Court. So, you know, the Supreme Court recognized that, yes, bankruptcy law or PROMESA is federal law, but what these members of the oversight board are doing um, are, are really, as, as Zach mentioned, um, local duties. Well, an, in other words, uh, Professor Morangello, do you really think the Supreme Court was pretty much writing on a blank slate, or did they have much guidance from their own president for this decision? Well, um, there certainly is plenty of Supreme Court jurisprudence on both the Appointments Clause and on territories. And I think as it was mentioned in the introduction, um, you know, questions as to the impact of the cases involving Puerto Rico and PROMESA on, on the District of Columbia, for example. So um, there, there certainly was precedent. I... You know, I agree with how Professor Mangiello is, is laying it out. And I, you know, I agree. It's hard to say surprised or not surprised by, by a Supreme Court ruling. But, but I do think that it, the level of chaos that could have been created had a different outcome been reached is, is hard to imagine, uh, given all that has transpired already in the Title III proceedings. Um, there have been confirmed plans. There is, as you, you know, there have been a a huge amount of litigation and mediation. It's just difficult to imagine what what how that all could have been unwound. Bill, if I could add add to that too, uh, this is Professor Lubin. Um, I, I think, in addition, in some ways, it's sort of surprising that Congress and the and the executive let it get this far because this is an issue that could have been solved by just putting all these people up for Senate confirmation. Well, you know, that's exactly what happened. But then nothing happened. Uh, in other words, very shortly after the First Circuit issued its decision, the White House sent nominations of the board to the Senate for confirmation. And guess what happened? Nothing. No hearings. No schedule. Yeah, I, I find that kind of surprising. Well, you know, and also, by the way, we have to remember that this was uh, what? or two years ago, when Congress was not quite so deadlocked as it is now, but nothing was happening. It almost seemed as though uh, the Senate was going to let Puerto Rico blow up. And I wonder, folks, do you think that Supreme Court justices who know things like that and who read the newspapers wrote a decision to get a practical result, crafting law to give them the result they wanted? Well, I, I think as, as Zach mentioned before, um, the chaos that, that would have resulted from affirming the First Circuit um, would have been really staggering. Um, so, you know, was it just a practical decision? I mean, I, I do think this opinion is is well-founded. Um, you know, the Supreme Court in making a distinction between local and national duties, 
I, I think is is right. And it, you know, although the analogy is not perfect to a traditional Chapter Nine bankruptcy, in in Chapter Nine, a state can and sometimes does appoint someone to manage the city. Uh, we saw that in Detroit. Um, we saw it in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Um, in Pennsylvania, we have procedures for doing exactly that. And that person appointed to manage the city and manage the Chapter 9 bankruptcy does the same sorts of things that the Oversight Board is doing, representing the city in the bankruptcy proceedings, supervising the fiscal and budgetary policies, creating budgets, intervening when uh, the budgetary policies aren't followed. Um, you know, we'll talk later on in this podcast about Justice Sotomayor's concurrence, and I, I want to stress it's not a perfect analogy. The re relationship between Puerto Rico and the federal government is not the same as the relationship between a state and its cities, but as the court noted, the government of Puerto Rico exercises local powers, and if the oversight board is exercising those powers, um, those powers should be viewed as local. Yeah, you know, I think it's really well, yeah. interesting this the statement um, in the in the decision later on um, saying that the board here acts as a local government, um, and that even though some of the board's actions may have nationwide consequences, um, that that again doesn't turn the board members into officers of the United States. And there's even an analogy there to large, um, you know, large corporate Chapter Eleven proceedings in a particular jurisdiction having a nationwide impact. But I will say, um, you know, just to just to throw it out there, I I do struggle a little bit to to really accept uh, fully uh, that the, the board is is truly acting as a local government. And I, I, I uh, for example, there there has been such a such an amount of litigation in the Title Three cases between the local government represented, you know, through AFAF, the financial advisory arm mm -hmm. of Puerto Rico, and the board. So if you really accept that the board is acting as a local government, I guess that the implication is then there are two representatives of local government arguing it out in court over what what is the right answer for the local government. And I, you know, Bill, to your question, is it possible that that the court may have been thinking about getting to a practical result? that type of issue is something that in my head, in my mind at least says well maybe maybe that was part of the motivation here um just uh for what that's worth i i just wanted to um affirm something zach said about struggling with the idea of the oversight board being a local <clears throat> government but then again you know we do see the same disputes in chapter nine cases again not completely analogous but mm -hmm. you know the residents of detroit were not too pleased with having uh, Kevin Orr appointed by the government as their uh, appointed by the governor as their uh, emergency manager. So we do see these same struggles in Chapter Nine. Mm -hmm. Although, yeah. in part, it, it, it may also go back to something that, that Juliet mentioned earlier, and namely that the analogy is not perfect. That at least prior to the debt crisis, Puerto Rico had a degree of independence that even Detroit never had. And now, now it's been taken away, and that's the source of some of this friction, I think. Well, let me let me ask you all something. In his concurring opinion, which frankly, in many respects, is more of a dissent than anything else, 
Justice Thomas said he did not like the, the distinction between local and national duties. He thought it was a sort of a, a made-up distinction that could lead to abuse by Congress. What are your thoughts? Is that really a good enough distinction on which to rest a constitutional decision such as this? Well, I, maybe I'll, I'll jump on that first. I'm not sure that Justice Thomas offer, offers a good alternative because he basically, right. he goes back to original intent, but he goes back to original yeah. intent at the, at the point of the revolution. I'm not sure at the point of the revolution, anybody thought that the United States would have what amounts to colonies. Mm. So, um, and, and if anything, he, he may have wanted to go back to the intent of the 1890s, that might have made more sense, but because uh, that's that's when we acquired Puerto Rico. But at the very least, I'm not sure he offers a convincing replacement for the local versus national scheme that Justice Breyer has. Very well said. It's interesting how, how stark the contrast is between Justice Thomas's sort of kind of narrative of the history underlying the situation versus, um, you know, in, in Justice Sotomayor's concurrence versus in the majority. It's, I just think it's very interesting. To right. try to... With respect to Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, I think it very distinctly points out the difference in approach by Justice Thomas and the most conservative members of the court uh, when it comes to constitutional interpretation and the approach taken by some other justices, because it really seemed in his decision that he would base uh, his uh, result on what he thought the framers of the Constitution would have said back in uh, the 1780s. And uh, I think that's something important to keep in mind. But listen, let's go on to a, a related topic in the opinion that the opinion did not deal with right. however it was dealt with with uh, some significance in the first circuit opinion namely the insular cases would mm. somebody like to tell us what the insular cases are and how the supreme court if it all dealt with it in this opinion so in short the insular cases are a series of cases that were decided in the early 1900s, I think through, through about 1920, if I'm recalling correctly, um, that dealt with the status of Puerto Rico and a couple of the other territories that were acquired as a result of the Spanish-American War. And they basically created this concept of unincorporated territories that could somehow be different than the territories that would, were expected to become states. And the insular cases are particularly noted for their, um, well, the most, you can't really say it politely, for their, their racism and their very uh, early 19th century view about locals in uh, territories that were acquired that were different than what the court viewed as quote unquote normal Americans. Yeah, I agree. I think part of um, I, I, part of the the insular cases, uh, as I understand, is 
sort of justifying Congress's ability to legislate um, differently with respect to Puerto Rico and territories as compared to um, uh, states. Right, and perhaps not extend to them, at least not initially, the full panoply of constitutional rights. Right. My, I think also, I mean, even though the court didn't, Bill didn't, didn't reach the insular cases here, um, if I remember correctly, I think that the union that was part of the appeal was actually, you know, asking the court uh, and the First Circuit to, to overturn those cases or really to revisit them. Um, I, you know, I, I personally, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that the court didn't, didn't get to that point. Um, I think that there, I mean, there's so much about the insular cases um, that, uh, that frankly is, is, is very, very upsetting um, and have, have been written about um, as, as being controversial. And I think that here the court was able to, you know, reach a resolution of the issue just based on um, the appointments clause issue. And if it didn't, if it didn't have to get to the insular cases, it, it wasn't going to. I mean, the First Circuit um, right. talked about it, as you said, in, in the insular cases and in some detail, but there was really, um, you know, no reason for the Supreme Court to go there in this opinion. I, I think the insular cases in particular present a kind of conundrum because on the one hand, everybody recognizes that they're completely offensive. On the other mm -hmm. hand, if the court wants to talk about them, they, they might then have to explain what exactly Puerto Rico's le legal status is and mm. the court str struggling to avoid that decision. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I think you're uh, segueing into Judge Sotomayor's concurrence, but before we get there, one thing I want to mention is a lot of folks were hoping that the Supreme Court would do what it did when it, I want to say, summarily rejected its own Karamatsu decision from World War II, where the Supreme Court concocted wow. some rationale for imprisoning uh, people of Japanese descent. So perhaps what we have here is an opportunity missed. But in any event, let's talk about Justice Sotomayor. Um, very odd sort of a concurring opinion. And in some ways, it's not really an opinion at all, because it really doesn't state opinions. It makes or raises question after question without giving the answers. Which of you folks uh, would like to take it and tell us about Professor uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor's opinion? Professor Lubin, maybe, maybe you'd be a good guy to jump on that and tell us what she had to say. Okay. Um, I mean, in short, it's, it's a concurrence because she agrees with the holding based on the arguments that were actually made in the case. But that's about as far as she goes in concurring. She then proceeds to state that there's a bunch of arguments that haven't been made, and if they had been made, may have led her to a different decision. Um, and I think sort of the core of the concurrence comes at the end of the very opening of it, where she says that territorial status should not be wielded as a talismanic opt-out mm. of, prior, of prior congressional commitments. 
So um, I take that to mean she's saying Congress made some commitments in the 1950s when it gave Puerto Rico territory and Commonwealth status. And nobody is really addressing the issue of whether or not PROMESA is consistent with those commitments made back in the 1950s. Well, it was not only Commonwealth status, it was also a very high level of self-governance and democracy. Is that not correct? That's correct. It was described as a compact with the Puerto Rican people. In part, this was motivated by a desire to tell the United Nations that the United States did not have any colonies. Um, mm -hmm. And so they, it was, and it was a, the constitution was adopted not only by Congress, but also by the Puerto Rican people. Um, and it was, at least at the time, was presented as a kind of special status, not quite a full treaty, but some sort of special status, which I think Justice Sotomayor is at least suggesting involves the giving up of some degree of sovereignty by Congress to the Puerto Rican people, which is suggesting they can't take back in PROMESA. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, I, I found the concurrence to be a, a history lesson, really, that illustrates the unique status of Puerto Rico and really illustrates why the bankruptcy slash PROMESA question is so complicated, because if Puerto Rico is more like a state than, as Professor Levin just said, it's, you know, it has a certain, it has a level of sovereignty, and then that throws us into the state bankruptcy issue. Um, you know, in noting that Puerto Rico's governor is a non-voting member of the board, she echoes the concerns that, um, that Zach uh, Smith uh, mentioned uh, a little bit earlier about, you know, echoes the concerns of, you know, what, what the city residents would say when the state appoints a receiver or an emergency manager. In her concurrence, really, tries to illustrate that this is not um, state versus city, this is more like a state bankruptcy, I think. Yeah, and I, I found it so interesting in that, in that paragraph, Professor, that, uh, that you're talking about, where, where she, she talks about the ex officio board member, uh, the governor of the Puerto Rico, just the, the specific nature of the words used there, you know, without any voting rights, and, and, and says, despite the board's wide ranging veto-free authority over Puerto Rico, um, that it's just such a stark contrast to the rationale in the majority opinion, um, referring to the board as a local local government. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's just so different. I also, I just happen to be looking at that, that, that page, but even in Justice Sotomayor's discussion of the structure of PROMESA, where she talks about the statute prescribing a, she uses the word labyrinthine procedure. I don't, when I read that, I don't read that as any sort of, you know, a compliment to the way that that PROMESA has, you know, laid out the selection of the board. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a, you know, a bit of a criticism there or a skepticism. Um, you know, I thought that was very, uh, very contrasting for sure. Well, you know, Looking, looking at the First Circuit decision and Justice Sotomayor's concurrence from 100,000 feet, something very interesting comes out. The First Circuit was written by uh, Circuit Judge Torruella, who is Puerto Rican. 
And notably, he has written several opinions in recent years. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, uh, I can't think of the right words, uh, disturbed beyond words about the poor treatment of Puerto Rico and its citizens. I mean, it's just, some of his ex- opinions are just extraordinary uh, in that regard. And then he found that Permisa was unconstitutionally constituted. And I got the sense from him that because it was so important, because you were taking away powers from Puerto Rico and its citizens, that it was so important it should have been, the board should have been appointed at the highest levels of the federal government by Senate confirmation. And then we have Justice Sotomayor, also of Puerto Rican descent. If you read her decision, trying to guess what she would have ruled had the questions that she raised been briefed, one has to think she would have found that Promesa was in conflict with the 1950 compact. So I, 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 I see a, in a way a, a, a thread between Circuit Judge Torwaya and uh, Justice Sotomayor, which is really based around mistreatment of Puerto Rico. But that's my, my own cut. I, th- I think you're right, Bill. I think that they, they both are offering different arguments while why Promesa is, is problematic, but they're coming from the same common core. Well, thank you. Listen, let, let me let us end this with one final but important question that may not be so short to answer. And that is, is the Promesa board out of the woods? Is there, by chance, some other litigation in the wing that could be just as devastating in terms of upsetting what's been done so far in the Promesa cases? Uh, Professor Lubin, again, maybe you're the person to tell us about this prospect of further litigation on a different issue. Well, I, I think there's actually, actually two possible issues. One is the one we were just talking about. I think Justice Sotomayor sort of lays out a possible avenue for challenging the board if somebody wants to take it. And then in addition, mm-hmm. we actually have live litigation now. AMBAC, the bond insurer, has claims in an adversary proceeding that Title Three, or well, they actually argue that all of PROMESA is an unconstitutional bankruptcy law because it is non-uniform. That is, it violates the bankruptcy clause. That is just in the early stages right now. Uh, Professor Lovin, is there by chance any academic uh, authority that <laughs> the bondholders <laughs> might be able to cite in support uh, of, their, of their positions? Yes, I hear, my, I, I hear my fellow panel members chuckling because, yes, a couple of years ago, I did suggest that at least Title Three was potentially a non-uniform bankruptcy law. The only time that the Supreme Court has struck down a bankruptcy statute on uniformity grounds is when Congress passed a bankruptcy law that applied to a single railroad. And in this article from a couple of years ago, 
um, that I published for a symposium at Brooklyn Law School, I argued, hey, Title III is essentially a bankruptcy law that applies to a mm -hmm. single territory. Doesn't that yeah. look a little bit like a bankruptcy law that applies to a single railroad? There may be a uniformity problem here. Um, and clearly the bond insurer has taken that argument up with great gusto in their adversary yeah. proceeding. Well, Professor, if uh, Justice Sotomayor, or for that matter, the First Circuit, were to say, yes, it is not uniform, uh, what could Congress do to fix it? Well, the easy fix, assuming again that you have a fully functional Congress, which is a, perhaps a big assumption, <laughs> Um, but if you've got a fully functional Congress, the easy fix would be to just expand out PROMESA to apply to all all territories, like the U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, would all be covered by, under the basically the Title III process. Then you have basically a sort of a bigger class than a class of one. Well, then the question is, however, uh, it, it, with the PROMESA, Appointments clause issue. They had the de facto officer doctrine to validate actions already taken. But if the law were found to be in violation of the of the uh, uniformity clause, one wonders whether there is a fallback to validate that which was already done. Yeah, it's an interesting question about whether or not you would have to start all the Title III cases back at square one, assuming Congress fixed the law and expended it out to all territories, would you have to start at square one all over again, or could you just go forward again? Because there's only one Supreme Court case invalidating a law on uniformity, I'm not sure we really know the answer to that. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Oh, boy. Well, it means we're going to be back here sometime, probably. <laughs> <laughs> with, with, you know, maybe a year from now, uh, talking about exactly issues uh, such as these. Well, I think we have probably exhausted ourselves and perhaps also our audiences. With today's discussion, we have now covered the last of the bankruptcy-related decisions from the Supreme Court this term. So we will not be back with a program like this until sometime next year. Chances are, the first bankruptcy case to be argued in a term to begin in October will be the so-called Chicago parking ticket cases, where former bankruptcy judge Eugene Weedoff, a former bankruptcy judge from uh, Chicago, will argue on behalf of the debtor. That case will have to do with how automatic the automatic stay is. I'm guessing that case will be argued sometime in either uh, October or early November. So it is possible we will be reconvening one of these discussions again sometime around the end of the year to report on how the Supreme Court believes uh, about the automatic nature of the automatic state. That having been said, let me thank all three of you for your participation and your help. And uh, meanwhile, uh, stay home, be safe, be well, hug your family. If you can't hug them, call them. But uh, we'll be back as soon as something else important has happened in the world of bankruptcy. Thank you and good day. Thank you to our guests for the engaging discussion. And thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. 
This and more than 200 others can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Stay safe and have a wonderful day.